Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those who want to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, the history of Christianity, those untapped corners of my faith, the origins of my faith I had not explored before, the history of the Bible, the early church, and up through the Reformation and beyond. And it was then, in a deep dive of church history, that I encountered the Catholic Church. There it was, looming large. And it was then, when I began to dig into what Catholics actually believed, from actual Catholic sources, I realized what I thought Catholics knew and what they actually believed were two different things. What I believed, Catholics believed, was based in large part on misinformation, and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, guys, I have a truly fantastic episode for you. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell uh, to talk about the Eucharist, the Eucharist in the early church. What are the very first Christians, those who were taught by the apostles, those who sat at the feet of the great apostles, what did they believe about the Eucharist, about communion, the Lord's Supper? See, it's one thing to think that 2,000 years later, we believe these things. Catholics believe this about the Eucharist and the real presence of Christ and all that. And Protestants believe this in large part and these kind of things and symbolic and, and all that. But what did the earliest Christians believe? Well, we dig way deep with Dr. Kenneth Howell, an absolute expert on this subject. I mean, we dig way into the weeds here. We're looking at the Latin, at the Greek, at what the actual words of the text mean. And where we find these things, what the early church believed and what we believe today. It's a fabulous, a fantastic episode, and I hope that you will enjoy it. This podcast, these episodes are brought to you in part by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, who every month help to underpin this show, and I have three new patrons to thank. Thank you to Bob, thank you to David, and thank you to Kevin for your support each and every month. It goes a long way into helping this thing to keep going and and to keep growing as well. So thank you. That's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a one-time donation. And thank you. And now, without any further ado, my conversation with Dr. Kenneth Howell on the Eucharist in the early church. You're going to love this, guys. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. A fantastic conversation this week. I know I say that probably every week. I think I repeat myself. I get all kinds of emails, people saying, don't say fantastic so many times. I'm sorry. This one is truly fantastic, despite whatever I've said before. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. He is Senior Fellow of the St. Paul Center of Biblical Theology, Director of the John Henry Cardinal Newman Institute of Catholic Thought, and Adjunct Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Illinois. 
He has a PhD in linguistics from Indiana University and a PhD in history of Christianity and science from the University of Lancaster in the UK. He is the author of a number of fine books, including two collections of translations and commentaries, one on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna, and another on Clement of Rome and the Didache. He's also written down his conversion story in Something Greater Is Here, and for our purposes today, a fantastic collection of daily meditations on the Eucharist, The Mystery of the Altar, out from Emmaus Road Publishing. It's a gorgeous-looking book. It feels substantial, and it's full of amazing content as well. And Dr. Howell is, as I mentioned, a convert to the Catholic faith. He spent 18 years as a Presbyterian minister, seven as a professor of theology at a Protestant seminary, and he is our guest today to talk about all this kind of stuff. Dr. Howell, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show, and hello. Thank you, Keith. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. You know, I could have drawn on all kinds of places for your bio, because it is extensive, and there's more to it than even I revealed there. So I'll give you a chance at the end of the show to tell us where else we can find things about you, because I know there's way more we could have we could have listed in that extensive bio as it was. I want, I want to begin here, Dr. Howell, because for personally, for me, this is a moment of excitement. Uh, listeners, viewers of this show know that I'm a convert as well, and as I was looking into the Catholic Church, before we had kids, I used to stay up till 2 or 3 in the morning in the early days of YouTube, searching up videos on Catholic lectures and conversion stories, and I gotta say, I found you and yours on the journey home a few times and some lectures you did, and I thought, gee whiz, if somebody this smart is becoming Catholic, what's stopping me? I mean, <laughs> so... It's great to speak to you now in person because you're one of those guys, I, honestly, that I watched your lectures and your conversion story and thought, wow, I mean, this guy has looked into this. He seems pretty bright. <laughs> what am I missing here? And eventually I did become Catholic uh, six or seven years ago now, uh, that journey. So for me, I mean, just personally, thank you. Thank you for the work you've done. Look, I do want to begin there if we can, because I'd be remiss to have you on the show. Uh, lots of our listeners are looking in the Catholic Church, are converts, new Catholics. I'd be remiss not to ask you to give us a little bit of a snippet of maybe your conversion story. You have a whole book on that, and I'd love to have you back again talking about that book in its entirety <laughs> at some point. But I wonder if you can give us just a little snippet of what brought you into the Catholic Church? Well, back in the 1980s, the late 1980s, I was teaching in a, as you mentioned, in a, a Presbyterian seminary, and I had been ordained a Presbyterian minister for about eight or nine years. I was a, a pastor, and then I started teaching in a seminary. And during that time, um, I had a number of questions that I'd been in the back of my mind for many years, and I hadn't really addressed them. So I thought, well, now is the time to begin looking at that. One of those questions was, uh, why in the Presbyterian tradition, uh, the sacraments, although they were acknowledged as sacraments, as baptism and the Lord's Supper, why they weren't more prominent in our uh, daily and weekly experience? And the answer led me to investigate a little bit more the history of the church, and particularly the church fathers. And you mentioned that I translated some of the earliest church fathers. Um, and as I read them, and then later fathers, I realized that um, the question that we had dealt with in seminary when I was being trained uh, in theology 
um, the question was a good question that was asked. And that question was, which um, tradition in Christianity represents the tradition of the ancient church? Was it, uh, was it evangelicalism in general? Was it particularly Calvinism or Presbyterianism? Was it Lutheranism? What, what was it? And in asking that question, I realized that going back to the 16th century, what, what the question that they debated between the Reformation and the Catholics was this very question. And so the Reformers in general, and Calvin in particular, uh, argued that it was they, that is the Calvinists, who were the true heirs of the ancient tradition. But the more that I delved into the history of the church, I began to realize that the answer that Calvin and others had given was wrong. That in fact, the true heirs in the modern world of the ancient Catholic, uh, ancient Christian traditions uh, was really the, the Catholic Church. So um, for whatever reason, God put it on my heart to begin reading about the Eucharist. And I came to realize that there was not one church father that had ever denied openly that the Eucharist was truly the body and blood of Christ. And when I came to that realization, I realized, uh, wait a minute, it wasn't the Catholics who gave up that ancient belief. It was the Protestants, or at least the Presbyterians and some others who had given it up. So that really made me, that really put a, a wrench in my faith, so to speak. <laughs> and I, uh, I began investigating more, and I came to the point where no longer was this a, a mental or intellectual investigation, but it really was a personal investigation. What was I going to believe? How was I going to live? In what church was I going to, uh, to live my life? And as I began doing that, I began going to Mass. And that was a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> because the more that I went to Mass, the more, and more, the more that I learned about the liturgy of the church, the more I realized that this was the ancient liturgy that St. Justin Martyr, for example, had uh, outlined in his first apology in the mid-2nd century, less than 100 years after the death of the last apostle. So I, I, as I began doing that, I began noticing a real change in my thinking and in my feelings about what it was to be a Christian. And it's a long story kind of condensed but, but sh what happened, in effect, over the period of about six years was that I came to the very uh, deep and profound conviction that I needed to enter into the Catholic Church. Uh, that wasn't easy uh, because it meant giving up my uh, ordination as a Presbyterian minister. It meant giving up my position as a teacher in a theological seminary. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Uh, to be honest with you. Um, but even the greatest the greatest obstacle was that at that time, my wife was not on the same page as I was. And we had always been together and, and in our um, in our theological and in our religious beliefs. Um, but now we were finding ourselves going in uh, our, our paths de uh, departing or or separating. And in that process, 
um, I was waiting to see if she could join me in, in joining the Catholic Church. We came to a point in which we realized there was no, there was not going to be no no agreement on this matter, and so we had a very difficult but necessary conversation, in which I told her that in good conscience I needed to join the Catholic Church in order to be obedient to Christ. She told me that by the same token she could not do that in good conscience. And so we decided to, for the first time in our life, to belong to separate churches. Now, in all these conversations that I had had with my wife, she did come to realize that the Presbyterian tradition was deficient. That is, the Presbyterian tradition does not believe that the bread and wine, uh, blessed by the pastor or you know, brought forward, are truly the body and blood of Christ. Now, they do believe that we have a, a, a communion with God in heaven through that sacrament, but it, but it wasn't sitting on the table, uh, the body and blood of Christ. So um, she came to realize that that was deficient. And so I, I explained to her the Lutheran position, the Anglican position, and the Catholic position. And in all that, she came to say, well, I want to join the Lutheran church. So for 14 years, uh, we went to the Lutheran church every Sunday morning, and she went to Catholic Mass with me every Saturday night. <laughs> and uh, we lived our Christian marriage as best that we could, and we you know, continued to raise our kids and so forth. Um, but then on June the 1st, which was my, at that 1996, that was my 44th birthday, um, I was received into the Catholic Church. I was confirmed, and I received... Jesus Christ, uh, Lord, the Lord and Savior, as my Lord in the Holy Eucharist for the first time. And I can say that in these 20, what has it been, 20, 23, 24 years now, I've never looked back. <laughs> I am so thankful to be a Catholic. And I remember that when I was on this journey into the church, I said, God, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I mean, I can't be a, a priest and I can't be a uh, even a theological teacher in a Catholic church uh, school. So what can I do? And I remember telling God, if I I will be a janitor if you want me to be. Now there's nothing dishonorable about that, of course. But usually a man with two PhDs is not a janitor. So uh, so I said, well, I'll be a janitor if you want me to. But please let me be a janitor in a monastery, <laughs> so that I could pray and and be with the monks and and all of that. Well. God in his mercy uh, did use those that background and those talents that he gave me uh, to the benefit of the church. And so I was very thankful that uh, I had that opportunity to come into the church. But even if none of that had ever materialized, I still count it my greatest privilege to go to Mass every day, to worship God through the liturgy of the church, and to receive the body and blood of Christ. So I'm extremely thankful uh, to be a Catholic. <laughs> That's an extraordinary story. And I love that the Eucharist ties into your conversion story. I mean, that was it's been in the narrative of your spiritual life. That's been an important thing for you. And of course, you know, our topic today, the topic of your work, a lot of your work, this fantastic book you put together, it's obviously central to you. I mean, I can relate on so many levels 
to that experience. I mean, I didn't even, I came from a non-denominational evangelical background that was very non-sacramental and discovering what the Eucharist was, I mean, hearing about that for the first time, <laughs> that blew my mind. <laughs> I wonder if we can begin there at what the Eucharist is. We have a lot of listeners who are, of course, I mentioned, you know, non-Catholic looking into the Catholic faith. They find this podcast because they type in looking at Catholics, you know, becoming Catholic, question marks, people do that, and they find this podcast and this YouTube channel. And they might hear the word Eucharist and and maybe have not even a context for, for what that is. So can we start by explaining what the Eucharist is before we dig a bit deeper? Well, it goes back very simply to our Lord's institution of the sacrament on the night before he died. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels, it gives us an account of when he took the disciples at the Passover supper and said to them, much to their astonishment, I think, this is my body, which is given for you. And then taking the cup of the Passover, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. Now, you know, again, we can't really know what the apostles must have been thinking then, but it must have astounded them to think that this Passover supper, which they had known as observant Jews, was now being transformed. It was being changed and heightened into a new level of a reality in which uh, the body and blood of the master that they had followed was going to be there. But still, what did that mean that it was his body? Was it the same body that was going to die on the cross the next day? That was going to be raised from the dead three days later? Was it the same body that was in the womb of the Virgin Mary when she gave him birth at the beginning of his earthly life? These questions... Uh, are natural questions that everyone asked. Now, here's the amazing thing that I discovered. The We often, in modern Catholicism, speak about the, um, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And by that, we mean that he really is his body and his blood given to us in the bread and the wine. But I discovered that the word's real presence never occurred in any of the church fathers. So how did they express it? If they believed that, how did they express it? Well, there's a, there's a myriad of different ways. But one of the things that they always say is that this is the same body that was born of the Virgin Mary. This is the same body that died on the cross. And so if I may uh, take the liberty of turning to in this book that you've mentioned, The Mystery of the Altar, uh, that we just put together, uh, to June 1st, which again, I mentioned is my birthday, the day in which I was received in the church. This is St. Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century, was born probably around the beginning of that century, but who by the mid part of that century had converted to Christianity. And remember, he was a philosopher. He was looking for the truth. And then he tells us in his dialogue of Typhro the Jew that um, he met this man who said, you ought to read the prophets of Israel. So he began reading them. And as he began reading them, he was converted to Christ. Here's what he says. This food 
is called the Eucharist among us. No one is allowed to partake of it other than him who believes the things taught to us to be true, and by him whose sins are washed away in the washing unto regeneration. He means baptism. In this way, one lives as Christ has commanded. For we do not receive these as common bread or common food. Rather, in the manner that Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was made flesh through the word of God, taking on flesh and blood for our salvation, so we are taught that the food that has made the Eucharist by prayer, by the prayer of his word, is, in fact, the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. Now, I think that's so clear that you have to either say, I believe it or I don't believe it. Do I believe that? Well, the question, to go back to what I mentioned earlier about the ancient church was, I asked myself the question, how could this man be wrong and I right 20 centuries later? How can I know better than him who actually listened to those who were taught by the apostles? So, and, and this is not the only place. Ignatius of Antioch, who died, we think, around 107, 108, who was the bishop of Antioch, who undoubtedly knew St. Peter himself. You know, crazy old Peter, the one who was always, you know, speaking up out of turn. And yet, that man, as feeble and as weak as he was, was transformed into a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. Peter had become the, the, probably the first bishop of Antioch. And then Ignatius was the third bishop. So he probably knew Peter. Well, he says very clearly, talking about the heretics, he says they don't profess or confess that this Eucharist is the flesh of Jesus Christ. So this was the faith of the ancient church fathers. And again, as I mentioned before, there was not one church father who ever out and out denied it. Now, they later on, they do talk about the fact that some did deny it, but they all affirmed the truth of this reality. Now, the natural question is, a question that they didn't address that much was, um, but how is that possible? How is it true that the bread and the wine could become the body and blood of Christ? And the church has given the answer, and it gave this answer way back in time. And that is that a priest ordained as a priest of Jesus Christ it has the same power, as it were, that to speak into existence or to speak into the reality of changing that bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And therefore we call this the Eucharist. Why? The Greek word Eucharistia in the New Testament means thanksgiving. And so we're deeply thankful for this reality that God has given us his own very life through this very simple meal that he gives us. This meal, which is also the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And again, if a person reads, uh, you know, through this in a year, 
which there's one reading for every year, they will see at times where the church fathers and others talk about that the that Jesus dying on the cross was this that same body that died on the cross is the body that we receive in the Eucharist. So if if there's a Christian out there who you know doubts this or doesn't have any context for this to make sense of it, it all goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and to the apostles to whom he gave this tremendous gift, this gift of his body and his blood. <laughs> That's fantastic. I could talk to you all day, I think, at this rate. It's just amazing. And I think, I'm going to go down a limb here and suggest this. I think the reason why, at least for me and those in my community, those that I knew in my circle as, as non-Catholic Christians, the reason why we didn't know a thing about the Eucharist, I think, is because it doesn't seem to be present in the Bible, in the New Testament, we look at the we look at Acts and see we see the apostles breaking bread together and singing hymns and being in the upper room. That I mean, if we had understood that in context, we may have had some little alarm bells going off here. But at face value, to a non-Catholic Christian, we don't necessarily see the Eucharist in the New Testament. The Church celebrating this in the early Church, and of course. We wouldn't have had the early church fathers, because not many in the Protestant world, in the evangelical world, would have heard of them. Like you and I discover them, and then become more and more Catholic. What do we? What do we say to those to those you know evangelical listeners, viewers who say, "Look, I don't see the Eucharist happening in my New Testament." Well, I think there's there's a couple of indicators. One, one I've already mentioned it uh, is, of course, that that. Um, Jesus instituted this, and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us this. I think that um, you mentioned the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, and I don't have a Bible in front of me, I, I should have had one, but it says that they held to the apostles' doctrine, they engaged in prayer, and it probably means certain times of prayer, like they had in Judaism, and that they held to koinonia, to fellowship, which is usually the way it's translated in Protestant Bibles, or communion, and to the breaking of bread. Now, what did that breaking of bread mean? Well, I can imagine a modern person might think it meant, well, they had a, they had a common meal together. And they did have that in the ancient church. And we have that in the Catholic Church today, too. I mean, sometimes we have meals in our you know, church hall or whatever it is. Um, but it's pretty clear if you study that phrase, the breaking of bread, throughout the book of Acts, that it is a meal that's more than just a, you know, common everyday meal. And so it says, for example, that in, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he's about ready to depart, and it says that on the first day of the week they came together and they celebrated this breaking of bread. This was an early way of expressing, expressing what we call later on the Eucharist. Now, the word Eucharistia uh, does not refer to the sacrament in the New Testament, and that might be why some of our Protestant friends don't ever see it in there. But, you can, but as I mentioned earlier, St. Ignatius of Antioch uses the word as a technical term. And so, as, as a term to refer to the sacrament. And he's not the only one. 
the Didache, which could have been written even during the apostles' lifetime. We're not sure whether it was written, let's say, in 50, or, you know, a little bit after 50 AD, or maybe up to 150. But there it uses the word Eucharist very clearly as referring to uh, the sacrament. And it even gives a kind of a little bit of a glimpse into the liturgy. So these early writings are in continuity with what we find in the New Testament. Now, how do we know that? Well, if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, we find something rather astonishing. But we have to read it very carefully. In Paul is writing to the Corinthians to correct a lot of the errors that had taken place in the church. The church was divided. Remember in chapter 1, he says, you know, there's Paul. One says, I'm of Paul. Another one says, I'm of Apollos. Another one, I'm of Cephas. So they were beginning to be divided. And that's not what God wants for the church. So then he deals with the problem of the resurrection in chapter 15. But notice that in chapters 10 and 11, he deals with the problem of the liturgy or the worship of the church. And there, in chapter 16, and no, in chapter 10, verse 16, he asks two very enlightening questions. He says, is not the cup of blessing or the cup of, yeah, well, I'll translate that way. Um, The cup of blessing which we bless a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ, and the bread which we break. Is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? Now, notice the question he's asking. He knows the answer, right? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, well, of course it is. This cup is the blood of Christ. This body, this bread is the body of Christ. And that's why he goes on in verse 17 to say, so that we were many are one because we all partake of the same bread. In other words, it's the Eucharist that makes us one in the church. And the Catholic Church, even today, stresses this greatly. The unity of the church is made so by Christ himself because he gives us himself in the Eucharist. So, You can see already within the New Testament. Now let's jump to probably what is one of the last books that is written in the New Testament. It's the Gospel of John. We know that John was on the island of Patmos from the book of Revelation. This is probably in the early 90s. And there he writes both the Revelation, the Apocalypse, and he writes the Gospel and the three letters that we have from him. So what does he do when he tells the life of Jesus? The Gospel of John is so extremely rich uh, and and wonderful. And by the way, I I know a number of Catholic theologians that are far more learned on the question of the Gospel of John than I am. One of them is Danny Garland. Uh, You ought to have him on sometime. Um, Anyway, in the Gospel of John, we find a very different life of Jesus. Now, people get hung up about which is historical and which is not. But I think the most important thing to remember is that he deals with two things in the Gospel of John that are only told as sort of factual stories in the the Synoptic Gospels. And those two things 
are baptism and the Eucharist. Baptism is dealt with in chapter 3, where the story of Nicodemus introduces the theme. And there, Nicodemus you know, comes to Jesus at night, and many Bible-reading Christians know this story, right? The story when he comes to Jesus at night and says, Oh, we know that you're a teacher come from God, because no one could do the things you do unless God were with him. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, thanks for the compliment, Nicodemus. He says, he comes right to the point. Unless you are born again of the spirit and the water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, by this time, by the 90s of the first century, baptism and the Eucharist are being celebrated in the church. And we know that from, from Paul in 1 Corinthians. So when he says, you must be born again of the water and the spirit, undoubtedly he's referring to baptism. And again, it's interesting to note that no church father ever denies that that passage in John 3 is talking about baptism. And in chapter 6, to get to our point, chapter 6 then is dealing with the Eucharist. But it isn't in the way that the other gospel writers did. Here, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he calls himself the bread of life. And you remember what he says? They begin to argue with Jesus. Oh, well, Moses gave, us, gave our forefathers the manna in the wilderness. And he says, it's not Moses who gave you the true bread from heaven, but my Father in heaven. He gives the true bread in heaven. And then he says, he, he, he gives them this, this punchline, so to speak. I am the bread of life. Now, as I've studied that chapter, I believe that Jesus there hasn't really told them yet what he means. He just says, I'm the true bread that's come down from heaven. But, but what is that bread? Well, as they begin to argue with him in verse 42, I think it is, he says, or they, they say, you know, but, but this Jesus, we know who he is. He's Joseph's son. He's, you know, how can he say such a thing? So as he answers that question, he comes to the punchline in verse 51. And he says that if you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have life in yourself. Or sometimes he twists it to make it negative. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life within you. And the word life there is the New Testament word zoe, from which we get the name zoe. Zoe. And zoe is John's word. Sometimes he just says life. Sometimes he says eternal life. But in either case, he's talking about the life of heaven, the life that comes from above, not this ordinary life of everyday existence that we have now. Now, what's interesting about it then is after Jesus says that, then they bring up the objection of all objections. <laughs> How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, if Jesus were a medieval or modern theologian, he would have gone into the doctrine of transubstantiation, <laughs> but he doesn't. Why doesn't he do that? Because at that point, in their existence, in their lives, they need to come to him in faith. And so he reaffirms. He says, you must eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. 
And then he says something even more astounding. Just as the living Father, just as I live because of the living Father in heaven, so he who eats of me will live because of me. So it's this indwelling existence, this indwelling um, presence of Christ in us that gives us eternal life. And this is why John clearly teaches that eternal life doesn't begin after we die. It begins now by this life living within us. But how does that life get within us? Well, other non-Catholic Christians, like evangelicals, are right to say that we have this through the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. But they forget the other half of that. And as Jesus gives us his own humanity through that Eucharistic bread that is properly consecrated by a priest, ordained as a priest of Jesus Christ. So you see, there's this wonderful teaching throughout the New Testament, but you have to be on the lookout for it to be able to read it in its proper context. Yeah, it's so much about, I mean, Marcus Gerdai, I think a friend of yours, always talks about the verses you don't see, right? And these that's one of the verses you don't see I mean, a collection of verses as an evangelical. I mean, we read our Bibles, we get to John 6. It, I have a hard time understanding now how I would have read that. But these verses you almost don't quite see, right? And I'm thinking like, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the evangelical looking at this verse, not seeing it. I think how, and seeing life in Christ as an important thing, but how much more, I mean, what were we missing as Protestant Christians in our understanding of what more we could receive from Christ. I mean, I, I, I counted the Eucharist, understood what it was and what the Catholic Church meant by it, and realized that I was missing out on this incredible, enormous source of grace to actually consume Christ. Exactly. I mean, that, that blows the mind in a sense, right? There's so much. Yeah. I mean, part of your mission, part of my mission with, with this, this program is to bring that news to our Protestant mm. brothers and sisters to say, look, mm. you have a great life in Christ. You're doing amazing things. Wow. But look what else you could have that Christ yeah. promised, right? Well, I, you know, I think that's such a great point you're making there. Uh, I think we have, to, we have to go back and we can think about how do we read Scripture? Now, I think that often evangelical Christians uh, read John chapter 6 as a illustration, a kind of a concrete illustration of um, having true faith. Because in an evangelical understanding of the Christian faith, having faith in Christ is the, is the ultimate. And if we have faith in Christ, then we'll go to heaven. You know, like it says in, in the book, in First John, it says in 5.13, it says, you know, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, so we take that, and we take Jesus, when Jesus says, he who believes in me has eternal life, they take the statements about the Eucharist or about the body and blood, and they kind of reduce it down to this personal faith. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Now, they will say something like, well, but Jesus calls himself the true vine. He's not the true vine, right? I mean, he's, he's just using a, a metaphor. And they're right. He is. But what does the metaphor mean? That's the question. Why did he call himself the true vine? Well, if we go back into the Old Testament, 
what do we see? Israel, the, the chosen people, are called the vine of God in the in Psalm 80 and in Isaiah chapter 5 and in other places as well. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, what he means is, I am the true son of Israel. I'm the true son of God. And it's by abiding in me that you have life. And remember what Jesus says there. Something I think we can take quite literally, right? When he says, without me, you can do nothing. Now, a good evangelical Christian will say, amen, brother. Without Jesus, we can't do anything, right? Oh, yes, that's true. But how do we get Jesus? How do we get him not a little bit? Not just by believing in him, but how do we get all of him? Well, we get all of him by taking the means of grace that he's given to us. And the means of grace are preeminently the sacrament of his body and his blood. So does he mean that he's literally, you know, the the bread and the wine or his body and blood? Not in the strictest sense of the word. But what it means is that that metaphor of the bread and the wine is the means by which he gives us his eternal life, the life that is within him. And the reason he does that is this. You mentioned a few moments ago that, you know, evangelical Christians, they do wonderful work. They're, they're out telling people about Christ, at least I hope they are. Um, they're, they're, they're doing wonderful work in helping uh, those who are needy, and they're proclaiming the gospel, and their worship is often very exciting. But why all of this? Why do we do good works? Why do we minister to the poor? Why do we proclaim the gospel? Why do we try to live an obedient and holy life? Well, the Eucharist is the explanation. God's purpose is to take us to heaven, is to take us into his own very life. Because heaven is not just being next to God or with God, it's being in God. And so he puts himself in us that we may someday join him fully in heaven. And that does bring up a true difference between the Catholic understanding and, let's say, a non-Catholic Protestant understanding. Many Protestants, especially evangelicals, believe that faith in God or faith in Christ is a trust that we place within him. And then by that trust, we are justified and brought into heaven. We're made legally accepted into God's family. But the Catholic understanding is a little different. It has that element in there. But it's more that we are united to God. So that the better imagery to understand this is marriage. Two people, a man and a woman, and I'd like to stress that, yes, it's just a man and a woman, okay, that can get married because marriage is a natural thing. But what do they do? Do they get married and say, I do at the, at the, uh, in the church, in the altar, to sit there and look at one another and have faith in one another? No. They join their lives together. And in the case of man and woman, it's to join their lives together physically. 
so that they may have the fruit of that life in their marriage and in their children. Our union with God, with Christ, is like that. We are united with his humanity because it's through his humanity that his divinity, that which is in heaven, comes down into our world and gives himself to us. You see, if there were no Eucharist, why did Jesus have to become a man? You see, he could have just commanded from heaven, believe in me, (laughs) and we can believe in him, right? And that's a little bit like Islam is that way. God commands, Allah says, and we must believe. That's what Islam really, really embraces. But our faith is a different faith. Our faith is one of union and communion. And when a person like you or me comes from a background where we didn't really understand or experience that, then we begin to experience Christ's humanity through the Eucharist. It has a transformative effect on our lives. Now, believe me, on your podcast today, your guest is one of the greatest sinners of all. <laughs> believe me. <laughs> and, but I do know this. That even with all my faults, all my uh, sins, all my foibles, that the Eucharist has helped me be a better husband, a better father. And now you can see by the white hair, a grandfather. Okay, It's helped me to be a better Christian. It's helped me to live a life in this world that is more dedicated to God, more focused on God. And I'm at a point in my life now which... I am continuing to write books, but I'm I'm hoping that before I die, I'll get to the point where I'm going to write no more. I'm going to write no more books, and I'm going to devote my life simply to prayer and to good deeds, so that I can be ready to go to heaven. But the key to that is not me. The key to that is Christ Himself, because He is the one who gives me that eternal life uh, from heaven. So that's why the Eucharist is so very, very important for us. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. That's fantastic. I think one thing I heard in there that stood out to me is kind of the key to understanding the New Testament, I think. We could, you could meet the evangelical who reads those passages and doesn't quite see them in context, doesn't quite understand them as, as you've explained and through this, this lens, it's... It's possible to miss that. But then you get to the early church, and you've mentioned this too, and you see how the first interpreters of the teaching of the apostles, before the Bible even was written down and recorded and collected, you see how they are understanding these different things. And for me, that's that's one of those keys that unlocked this amazing mystery. When you see, okay, unless you say, yeah, they fell into apostasy immediately and totally misunderstood Christ and his words almost immediately, you have to recognize that the early church, as you said, was unanimous in understanding what the Eucharist was. Is that fair to say? Oh, it certainly is. Now, I'll tell you a little story about that that illustrates what you're saying. When I was in seminary, I had a professor of New Testament that I greatly admired. He was one of my favorite teachers. And uh, one day in class, he shocked me. He said, and I remember, I mean, this is like 35 years ago. I still remember it. He said, read the Apostolic Fathers. So just to put that in context, Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Rome, 
the Didache, these earliest Christian writings outside the New Testament. He said, read those writings, and I think you'll see a very different faith that is in the New Testament. And I went, I thought, I didn't say a word, but I thought, what? How could those who were so close to Christ and the apostles have gotten it so wrong? But you see, you almost have to believe in a kind of apostasy theory that you just espoused, right? That you just said. And oh, how come, and if they got it wrong, then how do we know we're getting it right? You see? That's the natural question. So the presumption has to be that, no, these people continued on that tradition. Now, we also know another thing that we haven't mentioned. That is that the early church had this process of becoming a Christian, whereby you were what we call a catechumen, right? You were being taught by the teachers of the church in order to be baptized and to receive the Eucharist to come into the church. And we know that from various descriptions of liturgy in the ancient church, that there were two parts of the Mass, of the liturgy. The first part was the liturgy of the Word, just like we have it today, and the liturgy of the Eucharist. But those catechumens could not participate in the second part. Why? Because that's where the mysteries were. That's where the secrets were, so to speak. And they uh, could not participate in them because until they were baptized. So why do we have this sort of lacuna, this missing part? Because it was kept secret from people. It was called in Latin the uh, the secreta, the secreta disciplina, or the, the discipline, the secret disciplines, or the disciplina mysteria, mysteriorum, the uh, disciplines of the mysteries. And we see this reflected in the prayer of St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century, when he says, when when the, 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 the penitent or when the uh, the faithful come to Eucharist, the Eucharist, they say, I will not betray you to your enemies. You see, don't take these mysteries lightly. Don't take them to people who won't understand them. You see, so there was this, this two parts that that meant that people that, that they were not going to be conveyed just to anybody out there. No, no, they were going to be reserved for those uh, who were faithful. I might have missed something that you said there. Maybe you want to follow up on that. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. It's just the idea that when you look at those earliest sources and how they understand these things, it's a understanding of the Eucharist as as Catholics understand. I think that's really important to, to underscore there. No, it really, it really is, yeah. No, here's another point, I think, Keith, and that is that if we define our Christian faith apart from the intervening history you know, of 21 centuries, then how do we know that we're getting it right? I mean, look around. Now, you're, you're, you're in Canada, right? Okay, well, I'm in the United States, but in Canada and the United States, it's the same. Those historic Protestant churches that started out in the time of the Reformation, by trying to be faithful, at least half of them have jettisoned the, uh, the faith of the New Testament. Yeah. And so, I mean, you have this division in modern Protestantism, right? It's certainly true in the United States. 
between evangelicals who are trying to be faithful to the New Testament and those that have simply redefined Christianity. Now, I'll give a little bit of historical meat to that statement. In the late 19th century, John Henry Newman, blessed John Henry Newman now, um, he was an Anglican clergyman. He taught at Oxford University. And in his historical search, not unlike what you and I have gone through, he came to the conclusion that the church that is most in continuity with the ancient church was the Roman Catholic Church. And he did something that almost no one ever did in 1845, right? In the middle of the 19th century, he relinquished his Anglican credentials and became a Catholic, and then eventually became a Catholic priest. Now, fast forward to the end of his life. This is 1889 or 90. He was given the cardinal's hat, the red hat, you know, that shows that he was a cardinal by Pope Leo XIII. And someone asked him the question, well, is there anything that, that gives you continuity between your life as an Anglican and your life as a Catholic? You are a priest in the Anglican Church. You're a priest in the Catholic Church. What ties those two together? And you know what he said? He said, the one thing that has characterized my whole life through has been to fight against liberalism. And what did he mean by that? Well, we have to go back to his context. By theological liberalism, he meant, and he defined it. He said, the, the idea that there's no positive truth in religion. That's what modern Protestant, modern mainline Protestantism is. And I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and identify it. But I suspect that there are many in the United Church of Canada, I think that's what it's called, yeah. United Church of Canada, who exactly believe this. It's all a matter of opinion. It's all a matter of preference. It's no truth in the matter of religion, right? Now, evangelicals don't believe that. They believe that Jesus is true. God bless them for believing that. Well, that message that Newman said in England in the late 19th century was the same message that Pius X gave in his Syllabus of the Errors, which was against modernism. What did he mean by modernism? He meant the same thing, that religion has no truth. It's just a matter of preference. It's just a matter of choice. It's just a matter of, you choose apples, I choose oranges. You choose Presbyterianism, I'll choose Catholicism. No big deal, okay? Well, that same idea has perdured or has endured in so-called liberal Protestantism, right? And that's why evangelicals split away from the liberals in the in that in that tradition. And this is why, in a way, evangelicalism is much closer to Catholicism than, than let's say, you know, modernist liberal Protestantism is, because they do believe in truth. But again, what what, what I think evangelicals are missing is this rich sacramental life that is in the Catholic Church. And that's why when I became a Catholic, I didn't view it as so much as a renunciation of my past. I viewed it as a fulfillment of my past. I was finding what I was destined 
to get as a Christian, but just didn't know what was there for me. So I think that, that, that that's, that's why the Catholic Church is so beautiful in that it invites all of these faithful Christians into it. And it's interesting. I have a friend in Toronto. She's quite elderly now, but I would go and visit her. And she and she was she at one time had been a Catholic nun, but for good reasons. She she left the order and she became a Catholic school teacher right there in Toronto. And she told me, she said, Ken, you don't have to renounce most of what you've what you've believed your life. You you believe the scriptures. You believe uh, you believe in the authority of the Bible. You believe in the authority of the church. All of these things are good. Just bring them in to the Catholic Church. And I'm so thankful that I did. So yes, I had to modify some things, but by and large, most of what I believed as a Presbyterian, I can believe and embrace as a Catholic. <laughs> okay, I have a couple more questions for you, and I want to go over the book and get you to give you a chance to tell us where to find more stuff like, like this, because it's just yeah. fabulous. Yeah. And the first question yeah. is this. I have a friend, a Protestant pastor like, like you were, who argues that the church fathers weren't necessarily unanimous in how they understood the Eucharist throughout time, and that as a result, Catholics can't claim this continuous understanding since the beginning. Now, I've read articles refuting the real presence in the Eucharist where the Protestant author kind of pits the church father against himself, right? So this is an example, maybe like, you know, they might say, well, look, Augustine, uh, Augustine says here the Eucharist is literally Christ, but over here he says it's just symbolic. Mm -hmm. I said this before in this show, you can find quotes like this all day long and, and pit them against each other. But my my thesis has been that ultimately these church fathers, many of them were bishops, leaders in the church, and they submitted to the will of the church at the end of the day, no matter what they may have said along the way, right? We don't believe the Catholic Church is true because just certain church fathers said these things. They were part of this larger whole. But I'd be curious what you would say with a broad view of history. Would, is there any truth in the claim that the church hasn't been in agreement on the Eucharist for the last 2,000 years? I, I, I think the problem is, and I remember I, I taught a class on the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper at the Presbyterian Seminary, and actually assign certain church fathers to certain students, and they would do exactly what you said. Yeah. <laughs> they would they would say, oh, well, Augustine says this here, but over here he says this, and so forth. Now, an example of that at a more sophisticated level, the Presbyterian theologian of the late 19th, early 20th century at Princeton Seminary was a man named B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. He wrote a book called the plan of salvation, just a little book, but it was very insightful. He had another book, and by the way, in that he contrasts the Catholic and the Protestant views. But in another book, he had several collected articles that he had done about St. Augustine. And he delved into St. Augustine, and he was very fluent in Latin and so forth. He could read everything that I could read and other people too. And he said that we have to choose between the Catholic Augustine and the Calvinist Augustine. <laughs> because he said that there's these conflicts between them. So, as a Calvinist, I claim St. Augustine as one of my forefathers. So, what, so I went back and I started reading over and over and over again. And as I read it, I asked myself the question, is there any way to bring these things together? 
And I discovered there is. But the reason why Augustine appears at times to be more of a symbolic view is because Augustine was an incredibly intelligent and subtle thinker. Now, let me give you another example to explain that. In his commentaries on Genesis, he wrote five different times on the first two chapters of Genesis. In the biggest volume, it's called the literal commentary on Genesis, he says in there, he talks, he interprets the text in a way that to a modern mind sounds very non-literal. But that doesn't mean that St. Augustine didn't believe in literally in Adam and in Eve. He did believe in that. But he was giving an interpretation that wasn't meant it to be literal in our sense of the word. Because for us in modern times, literal means it's real, it actually happened, okay? And Augustine is asking a different question. But notice, he calls a literal interpretation. What he means by that is that it's real. It actually is true. Even though he interprets it in a way that to us sounds non-literal. That's what your friends are doing. They're interpreting the ancient author through their own lens that they're bringing to it, rather than trying to understand it as the ancient author meant it to be. Now, when I said that he's very subtle, he can sometimes look at something from the angle of the sign, the sign being bread and wine. At other times, he can look at it from the sign of the reality that's beneath the sign. And what he's, but he's not denying the reality. He's simply focusing on different things at different times. So when you ask, you know, is there continuity truly here? The answer is absolutely yes. But we can always misread authors if we don't. I mean, look at the different ways in which Paul is interpreted in the New Testament. Well, Augustine is as subtle as Paul is, and he can be misinterpreted. There's some that cannot be. And there's some that can't be. But let me give you another example. St. Augustine was born in 354 in Tagast in North Africa. He died in 430. His contemporary, a little bit older, was St. John Chrysostom. He was born, we think, around 349. He died in 407 prematurely in exile. I'm writing a book on on St. John Chrysostom right now. I've got multiple quotations from St. John Chrysostom, right? And it's very clear. And one quotation, I'll try to remember it as best I can off the top of my head. It's in his homilies on Ephesians. He say, he takes on the voice of Christ and he says, I was spit upon. I was, I was mangled. I was, I was hated. I was reviled. And I did this all for you. And I give this to you in the Eucharist. Now, so... Some, a, a modern Protestant might come along and say, hey, you see, St. Augustine and St. Saint, Saint John Chrysostom, they're not saying the same thing. But are they really different? Look beneath the surface. Look deeper into the mind of the church fathers, and you'll see that they are, in fact, saying the same thing, even if at different times they're focusing on different 
aspects of the truth. I think you too, you pointed out as well the fact that no church father is denying what we say the Eucharist right. is. And That's I mean, right. there, there are so many times in the writings of the early church where the Eucharist, along with the bishop, are, are the central thing that show people that were Christians, right? right? If you weren't celebrating the Eucharist as we do still today as Catholics, that was a sign that you weren't in orthodox understanding of, of Christianity, right? That, that is absolutely right. And the reason that there's never been a church council about the Eucharist, because no one denied it. Yeah. Until the Protestant Reformation. That's the first time. Now, I shouldn't say that completely. That's not true. In the sense that there were, there's this controversy with Berengar in the, in the 11th century, right? And he, he doesn't deny it, but he tries to make it more subtle in the sense that he says, and he, he puts the emphasis upon the symbol. There was this phrase used in, in, in Latin in the, the Middle Ages called sacramentum et race. The sacrament or the, the sign and the reality. What's the relationship between them? There's two extremes that we want to avoid. One is to so completely identify them. And that is what we see in front of us is, is like the body of Christ, right? As it's the same. It's not quite the same. There's the sign, which is the bread, and then there's the race, the reality behind it. That's what we receive. The other extreme is to deny no relationship, is to say that there's no relationship between them. There's just a sign. There's no reality behind it. What they came up with in the Council of, uh, in the Council of, uh, not Florence, uh, the Council of, uh, the Lateran Council in 1215, and then reaffirmed by Trent in the 16th century, was that the reality was so magnificent, so powerful, so, oh, awesome, that it couldn't be contained in human language. And that's why they said, they didn't mean the word transubstantiation to mean, hey, we've got it all figured out. What they were saying was, this is a change that takes place where the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ is so mind-boggling that the only word that we can come up with is transubstantiation. And by that they meant that the substance of the bread becomes the substance of Christ himself. That's the powerful statement of transubstantiation. <laughs> That's fantastic. Dr. Howell, this has been an absolute pleasure. I can't underscore that enough. A fantastic conversation. I think listeners, viewers will just love this. And they'll want to hear more from you and more from the church. Fathers, more from the church on this. And I mean, this resource, Mystery of the Altar, is gosh, it's fantastic. And I can't underscore that either enough. It's such a resource to go to, to find just a wealth of quotations about the Eucharist. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and where they can find it and, and other things that you're doing and working on? What do you, what do you want to say? Well, first of all, you, you started in the right place. The mystery of the altar. <laughs> it's done by, it's, it's beautifully put together. This, it's probably hard to see it on the camera, but uh, it's a faux leather, you know, the faux leather. It looks like leather. It's got gilded pages. Emmaus Road Press did a beautiful job putting this book together, physically putting it together. But, of course, the real riches are on the inside. And these are not because of me and my co-author, Joseph Crownwood, but it's because we have saints from the 2nd to the 21st century 
stretched out over time, over 365 days. This is, and I'm, I'm not one that likes to promote myself, but <laughs> this book is this book is just a treasure, and I use it myself every morning, even after I wrote, I have to write it, you know. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, that I'm myself working on, as I mentioned, a book on St. John Chrysostom, and then I'm going to do another history. Someday, we hope to put up a website with the Church Fathers, quotations on the Eucharist for the first eight centuries of the Church. They're going to be originally, the original Greek and Latin will be there, and then they'll be translated into English. And then after we get English, we're going to go to French, and then after French, we're going to go to Spanish or German, and we're going to make it a universal project for the whole Church, so that even centuries, if Christ doesn't return for, you know, five centuries, centuries from now, people will be able to read that. The most important thing I'd like to encourage uh, your your listeners to do is to, if they're not Catholic, if they don't know much about the Eucharist, even if they are Catholic, and they don't know, is to get a book like this and get other books and start reading and understanding. Because what you take in with your mind will feed your heart. The other thing is, Clearly go to Mass. And not just go, but participate. Read the prayers that are used in Mass and, you know, put them inside yourself so that the Mass becomes a part of you. It's, it's not just enough to be in the Church. The Church and all it teaches must be in us. And then do we do that by our participation in the Mass? <laughs> Dr. Howell, that's fantastic. I got to say a huge, I mean, personally, thank you. Thanks for being here. I want to say God bless you and the fantastic work you're doing for the church. And geez, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been, it's been great. Thank you, Keith. It's been wonderful to be with you. And I'd love to come back anytime you want to do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Well, that was a doozy, guys. I hope you loved that episode. I want to know what you think, please. What you thought. Head over to thecordialcatholic.com for my website, cordialcatholic at gmail.com to send me some feedback. Hey, we have a brand new newsletter as well. I should mention the top of the show. It's at newsletter.thecordialcatholic.com. Please do sign up for a weekly email. I will not spam you, I promise, but every week send you a little message about that week's episode and things that are going on at The Cordial Catholic. I'd love to be in touch with you. That's newsletter.thecordialcatholic.com. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, we're on YouTube at youtube.com slash the of Catholic to watch this episode. And please do subscribe there if you can help to grow that channel. That again too spreads the message of this podcast. That's the whole point of the thing. Please do follow or subscribe to this podcast where you find it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and please leave a rating or review if you could too. That helps to push the podcast out to new people. Hey, tell a friend you think that might like this show, too. Word of mouth is a huge way that podcasts like this one spread. And really, this episode is a fantastic one. I think a really good deep dive into the Eucharist and why we as Catholics believe this, why that belief is so importantly founded, grounded in the early church. Gosh, I just love this episode so much. I think it was fantastic. Hopefully you enjoyed it, too. Do let me know, guys. Send me an email. I get back to you as soon as I can. And I love to hear from you guys so much. 
Take care. I'll talk to you again next week. Pray for me. I am praying for you. And God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.